Welcome back to the Listening Podcast. We are coming to you remotely during COVID-19 lockdown. This is our third episode during quarantine, during lockdown. Uh, life is weird, Jake. Life is weird. Very strange. More on that in the post show, including some of our commentary on the Michael Jordan documentary that is on ESPN, The Last Dance, which we've been loving. Um, so if you're interested in that, very, very good. stay on after the outro music. Yes. A lot of good talk there. We talk Rodman. We talk Pippin. Um, we have talked through the first four episodes there. So listen to that after. Um, this episode, we're going to be talking about the new Fiona Apple album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. We're going to be talking about some of the new tracks that have come out over the last couple of weeks. And then uh, we have a deep dive for you about Sun Kill Moon uh, that I have gotten into over the last week or so. Uh, but Jake, let's start with this new Fiona Apple album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. This was the first Pitchfork 10 that we have gotten since 2010 with My Beautiful Dark, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. Um, a Pitchfork 10 in and of itself is a big statement and is sort of news because uh, we haven't had one in literally a decade. What was your initial reaction when you saw this review come through? Yeah, it's sort of like a shooting star moment. It's like, it's like a really, yeah, it's rare. It's a once in a blue moon thing. And um, I think appropriately, I was asleep on the couch and I woke up and looked at Twitter and I, I was like, oh, okay, they're going to give this Fiona thing best new music. I kind of expected that. And I was reading the tweet about it, which said, um, you know, fetch the bolt cutters is a genre defying, whatever, blah, 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 pitchfork speak. It's great music. It's a perfect album. And it didn't say anything about the score. And I was like, are they going to give this thing a fucking 10? Like, is this going to be a 10? And I was like, I don't know how you would say it's perfect without it. And I kind of like excitedly and in my half asleep state, clicked the link and saw the, the orange red 10 for the first time Ooh. in 10 years. And I, I, I honestly, like I got, like, I felt something I really did. And I, in some ways I think that was one of the most important reasons they did it. Like they could have given this a 9.4. They could have given it, you know, something above the nines and it would make waves, but it, it feels like it's a real statement to give it a 10. Totally agree. I had a similar reaction. Um, I think you actually texted me. You were like, dude, did, did you see the review? And, and just getting that text, I was like, oh, oh, I, I, I knew then. And it was the same thing where I was like, is this, is this what I think it is? And I opened it up and it was this wave of like, I didn't think they were going to do this again in a weird way. Yep. Like, yeah, I, that makes no sense, but I almost felt like we weren't going to see a perfect 10 score again. And I think you bring up a really good point that they could have given this album a 9.4. They could have given it a 9.6, even a 9.8. They chose to give it a 10. That in and of itself says something. Pitchfork went out of their way to give this the first 10 in a decade and that speaks volumes in and of itself and i want to unpack that idea before we even get into the music because so much of the initial conversation about this album 
was couched through the lens of the Pitchfork review. All of yep. the reactions that I saw that first day on Twitter, via text, there was so much buzz about the fact that it was a 10 and what that meant. I found that fascinating because it's 2020. I think we've been reading articles and seeing tweets um, for years now about how music criticism doesn't matter or we don't need it anymore. And for a 10 score to be given by Pitchfork and create that much buzz during a global pandemic, I thought was fascinating. It was this weird lightning in a bottle moment or day where it was like, this is going to own a certain subset of Twitter or online conversation. And I want to just unpack that for a second. Yeah, it definitely, it, it felt like a moment. It felt like a real kind of monoculture type of vibe where, I mean, monoculture to a degree, people who are going to care about this thing, everyone who is in the know at all about like what a pitch four ten represents and the fact that they are very, very rare. Anyone you'd expect to be in on this conversation on social media was and, and tweeting about it and already joking about it and like kind of breaking down the album. It was also a big moment for, I felt like um, women who are into music. It felt like it was, this was in the same way that Twisted Fantasy felt like it was a 10 that capped off the just pure ascendance that was Kanye West's career up to that point and how it was kind of like the crown on top of the genius label that he was being given. It felt like this was the, like, and I think the album's deserving of it, but I also think it was like Fiona Apple has been this consistent, every album in, album out, excellent output it's always critically praised and this felt like kind of a crowning moment where it's like yep she fucking crushed it again and you know she deserves this this is like you know it's kind of like the oscar like you know you've been up for an oscar a number of times and like yep. if anyone deserves it it's fiona apple and so it felt kind of like that to me and it kind of felt like even people who it's not the music they would necessarily listen to it didn't seem like anybody was like, no way, man, this doesn't deserve it. I, I agree. Well, okay. That, that's a whole other conversation, sort of this weird maybe backlash against the 10, but it will get, we'll, I want to get to that in a little bit. I, I want to stick on this idea of like how important that is. Um, because I agree. I, I think the comparison you make to kind of like that career achievement Oscar is spot on. And we talk a lot on this podcast about Pitchfork and sort of the politics of Pitchfork and the politics of their reviews and the scores that they give and the reasons they give certain albums one score and other albums another. I, having read Pitchfork now for about 10 years, um, you kind of see the ups and downs and, and, and you can kind of see those patterns or trends of giving scores especially over the last few years, it seems like there's been much more of a focus on music that comes from women or minorities rather than some of the white dude indie rock bands of the late 2000s, early 2010s. I think that used to be kind of like wheelhouse pitchfork that they would give a best new music to or would really prop up. I think around 2015, 2016, you saw that really start to shift. This, to me, 
this this 10 for fetch the bolt cutters seems like the culmination of that change in pitchforks scoring or reviews and it seems like a real statement of like this is what we deem to be important music and music that matters and look i think this album is excellent i think it's amazing i think this is an absolute crowning achievement by fiona apple i don't say that because pitchfork gave it a 10. i think pitchfork giving it a 10 is its own unique signifier in and of itself separate from the music and that's why we're not even talking about the music yet this is a pitchfork kind of like we are planting our flag in the ground right now by giving this a 10 this says more about Pitchfork than it does about Fiona Apple in a way. That's really well put. Uh, I think that in some ways it's like they took the 2010s off to reassess what Pitchfork is. Um, and I, I found myself thinking a lot about, because, you know, I think we are a little bit weird in the fact that like we are people who we do think about what goes into the behind the scenes stuff that makes a music journalism you know, organization tick and like what goes into the reviews. Cause there is politics, there is, you know, ideological stuff that is the underpinnings of any review like that. Um, and sure, like, they, like there, there are albums that people might enjoy more than this that would get an 8.2 best new music, but it's just, it's not important enough. Sort of. I found myself thinking about the debates that must've gone on at Pitchfork. I found myself thinking about that discussion of like, you know, I'm, you know that in that office, there had to have been people, I think Jen Pelly wrote the review. There were probably writers and editors there that had a real debate about it. I bet there were people who were like, well, if not now, when? Because it's been 10 yep. years, we got to piss or get off the pot with this, with, with a 10. And we can own the moment more by doing this. We can plant our flag in the ground in a, in a more emphatic way. And we can really make a statement in a way we haven't done in 10 years by doing this. And it'll speak volumes and it'll break the internet, you know, it, it, mu the music internet. Um, and, I it, and it did. It did, yeah. And I, I just sort of like, I found myself being fascinated by what that debate must have been like in that discussion in the moment when, you know, whoever made the final call was either won over or won over the people they had to to say, yep, this is going to be our first 10 in 10 years. Fascinating shit. I agree. I think the the inner workings of Pitchfork and how they arrived at this 10 is fascinating. I'd love uh, an oral history of this at some point. I'd love a Michael Jordan last dance documentary about, about this at some point, a 10-parter. Um, yes, I think giving it a 10 um, signified a moment, signified a direction for Pitchfork in a lot of ways. I also think it gave more attention to this album than it would have gotten if it even was given a 9.6 or a 9.7 giving it that 10 i think got more people to listen to it or care about it just because of that fact which i find fascinating that it, like like you cannot argue more people have sought out this album and listened to it because it got a 10 and i think that speaks to the power not of music criticism necessarily i think it speaks to the power of pitchfork and they've carved out this this area where tens are so rare when they do give them it's news in and of itself it doesn't even matter what it is to a degree exactly um so i found that really interesting that like there's a relevancy there 
but to a degree. And it's like you almost have to give it a 10 to get that kind of attention. Exactly, because a nine or something, that's just a really positive review from Pitchfork. That doesn't get it done. What's so interesting about this and what was, I think, even more exciting for me was that um, I, I didn't know that much about this album or anything going into it. All I knew was that on the previous podcast, you mentioned, oh, and Fiona Apple's coming out with her new album. It's called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Right. And I was like, oh, that we made the joke about she should just have longer and longer album titles with every release. That's as yeah. far as I yeah. thought about it. I was like, this will get it like an 8.9. It'll be good. I yep. won't come back to it. Well, and that's the thing with Fiona Apple. And this is how I thought about it too. Like the first Fiona Apple album I listened to was uh, Idler Wheel that came out in 2012. It got a very high best new music uh, on Pitchfork. I loved it. Uh, it was one of my favorite albums of 2012 and became one of my favorite albums of the decade. And when I saw that she had a new one coming out this year, I was like, oh, that's going to be undeniably great. I never thought for one second it would maybe get a 10. Like, I, I don't know. I just didn't think that was going to happen. And the fact that it did, um, again, speaks to a lot of the things we just talked about. Like, it's a real flag in the dirt moment. Yeah. And it was one of those great moments where when I saw it, I, w I sort of had this feeling of, surprised but also like of course like that this right. makes sense i i like yep. i don't know how i didn't see this as a possibility but i didn't yep. think of it that was what was sort of so exciting about it was it was like i just didn't see it coming and that's the beauty of the pitchfork 10 in a way where it's like look we have talked about pitchfork a lot on this podcast positive and negative because i think you know we have our annoyances with them and also we look to them i i open pitchfork every day i honestly do because i find it interesting the way they view and sort of package music for a public i think they've lost their way in some ways i think they've gained steam in other ways um mm -hmm. but it's it's interesting that seeing a perfect 10 for an album can kind of move us in a way like it, you'd think that we'd be beyond that but because of the fact that it's so rare I felt something from this. I was like, okay, whoa, this is like kind of exciting. I did too. I, I did feel something. I had a reaction and that day. I was sort of buzzing on, on the fact that we had a 10, like a modern day 10 to experience in the moment. And um, yeah, I think there is an interesting conversation to be had too about the reaction to the 10 in a lot of ways. Yeah. And th this went, this went sneaky viral in a way. Um, yeah. It went music, Twitter viral, uh, music, Twitter viral. Um, and I think there were certain critics who we follow who didn't agree that it deserved a 10, but were like, look, this is undeniably great. Maybe it's not for me. Um, I like other albums better, but I get it. I actually disagree with those people. I think they're being kind of wet blankets, and I think they're being like, I, 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 I actually think this is very deserving of a 10. I do. I, I do um, too. But what's interesting is there were those people who existed where they were sort of like, I'm too cool for this in a way, or like, um, I, I don't know. There was a weird bit of that. But something else that ended up happening is once – a few days had gone by. Anthony Fantano from The Needle Drop put out his review. Yeah. He gave this a 7 out of 10. Which, which go ahead, I have a little bit of context too. In and of itself, seems like a hot take reaction to the Pitchfork 10. It, it, 
am I off base there? No, it was, what's really funny is a few days before this, like when the Pitchfork review came out, because Fantano is always like three, four days behind, because I think he listens to albums when they come out for the most part. He doesn't have the, the advanced copies like a Pitchfork maybe does. I'm not sure, but the, he never releases his reviews day of, like the day they come out. It okay. just never really happens. Sure. Um, and I kind of follow him in a similar way that I follow Pitchfork. I, you know, when I agree with him, I'm pumped. When I don't, I get like kind of annoyed with him and I dismiss it. But yeah. context is when My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy came out in 2010, he gave that a seven and it has been a running sort of meme through the years that he, he missed. He, there was a miscarriage of justice by Fantano on twisted fantasy. So the day the 10 came out, I saw someone tweet like, well, we can't wait for Fantano to give this a, a seven um, to like rain on the parade. And Fantano retweeted it with a comment. He was like, yeah, because that's how I do my reviews, which I, I which I appreciate <laughs> because he, I think, as much as I disagree with him sometimes, I have always appreciated that he sticks to that kind of credo of like, look, this is my opinion. I'm just going to say it. And, and, you know, if you don't like it, like, that's okay. Maybe you'll agree with another one. But um, what I thought was interesting was that I, as soon as I saw that tweet, I started thinking like, okay, well, what's his move here? What can he do? Because Fantano has given 10s. He gave the money store by Death Grips a 10. He gave To Pimp a Butterfly a 10. He gave um, Kids See Ghosts a 10, which I thought was really That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, but I, I start, the wheels were turning in my head, and I was like, is there any way he can not kind of be contrarian here? The, the 10's already been given, and the 10 is as much about the statement as anything else. Like, it, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of equally rare for either of them to do. And so I, I was thinking, like, there's no way he's going to do that. What's his move? And I'm, I'm sort of not surprised as a result of that that he gave it a seven. And even though I think that Fantano does not think it's contrarian, but I think he doesn't even realize it is, if that makes sense. I could not agree more. I, I believe that he believes he is being impartial and he is, judging it and scoring it on its own merits and how he likes it. I don't think that's the full story. If you are at the level of a pitchfork or a Fantano, you have the followings that you do. You're, those are the two premier music critics that we have, basically. I, I, I think as weird as that is. Yeah, I think no, you're right. There is no way there was not some sort of subconscious rejection of the pitchfork way of doing business and the pitchfork 10 to the seven i'm sorry is too low for this album it is that is as low as you can go on this album without it being like dude come on a couple things i think he got scooped on this i really do i think he got scooped and i think like it was the situation where pitchfork beat him to it and yep. as a result there was no way the discussion of a Pitchfork 10 couldn't impact the way he reviewed the album. The other thing I was Correct. thinking is that I think he had some fun trolling fans about this because he did. So yeah. I don't know if you know the context of when he, not every time, but often when he's going to give a very positive review, he wears his yellow flannel in okay. the video. 
that's kind of like a famous Fantano thing is and like it's become this this kind of running meme on Twitter is people be like oh yellow flannel this is going to be a good one like the day before he drops the Fiona review he posts this little video on Twitter of him being like it's a yellow flannel day it's a yellow flannel day he's putting on the yellow flannel and he I think with the knowledge that people are going to see that and think, okay, Fiona, it's going to be at least an eight, but probably a nine. And it was this other album. I can't remember the name of, I can't remember for the life of me who it was that came out that day with him in the yellow flannel. The next day, Fiona Apple's review drops. It's only eight minutes long and he's just in some other shirt. And I thought that was like, Mm. I think he found he's, he knows how to string people along and to play the game and to troll. He does. He, he's incredibly internet literate and knows how to operate and knows what sets people up. Like, that's why he's good at what he does. That's why he's as popular as uh, he's incredibly talented. He gets it. I don't always agree with him, but I respect him. Um, it's interesting because he gives us a seven. I think that is suspiciously low. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of backlash to that. There was a lot of people who were like, Oh, Fantano hates women or like, He's only giving it this score because of X, Y, Z. I don't think it's, I, it, it's not to the degree that people were, were implying. Um, there, as a result of that, once he, this review came out, there was a lot of weird sort of gatekeeping about this album from people. Like a lot of people who were like, I guess you could say like virtue signaling about their enjoyment of fetch the bolt cutters they were sort of like i like fetch the bolt cutters i'm gonna make sure you know it because that says something about me and that says something about my politics that says something about my morals that says something about me being a feminist or whatever and it's interesting because i I actually think a lot of those people are missing the point of this album there's been a lot of like Yes, queen, Fiona Apple, like, what a queen. And it's like, it's, that's actually not what I get from this album. There's, this is a complex album. Like, yeah, it's a feminist album, sure, yes. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of empowerment message here. It's not a cut and dry, like, Beyonce, yes, queen, feminist manifesto. This no. is a complex human album. And she is just as critical of herself on this album as she is the males that she is singing about. And I think that is lost in some of the gatekeeping virtue signaling that is being done by the people who are attacking Fantano or are sort of defending this album to insane degrees. Like those, that subset of people is not allowing for a real conversation about this music. And they're basically saying, if you don't like it, you hate women or you're anti-feminist. And I think you're missing the point of this album if that is your take. So I, I didn't like that. There's like layers of backlash here in conversation that are cascading off of both of the, of the reviews that I find fascinating that would not have been happening if Pitchfork didn't give this a 10 to begin with. Yeah. It, what's also really interesting about it to me is that is that there's this always happens when a major, like think about when like a Kendrick album drops or like a Frank Ocean album or, you know, Beyonce or something there. I think about when damn came out, there's always, always you look on Twitter 
like 20 minutes after the album comes out or the morning it comes out and people are already tweeting masterpiece like Kendrick did it again can't believe like this is the best thing I've ever heard and like all kinds of gifts and just insane reactions and I think part of what what we bristled about with that and what what doesn't really sit well with us is like we we are album listeners we listen to albums a lot it's not really something people do and so I think people today this happens and it's like they went and saw the new Star Wars they're just going to post their reaction. They're just going to be like, this is yep. unbelievable. And maybe they listen yep. to it like twice ever or three times ever. And, and Jake, we're old hands at listening to albums. We're exactly. students of the game. We have a fundamental understanding that day one reactions don't mean a fucking thing. No. You could love it on that first day. And after you listen a handful of times, a half dozen times, you're like, actually, that wasn't as good as I thought it was. Or the complete opposite could happen. And I want to talk before we get into the music, because I don't think this even really requires the music that much. Let's say what our first, our initial reactions were. So for me, day of, I, I listened to it two times and I definitely liked it. I thought it was very interesting. My take in the immediate was like, this isn't really music that I get into that much. I can tell it's going to take some work, but it's good. And I just need a break. And I kind of took the weekend off from it. I didn't listen over the weekend. I don't even know if I had listened Monday. I got back to it like this Tuesday. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because my initial reaction was, I see why this got a 10. I get it. Yep. I'm personally not there with it, but I really like it. And if I'm being honest, I was like, for the first four or five days after this came out, and I, I was listening a decent amount, I was like, I like Idler Wheel more. I think Idler Wheel is better. And I'm only just starting to shift that way of thinking. And I think this is a good transition to get into the actual music and the, con- and, and the, the content of the album. Um, I needed the dust to settle from the 10 from the reviews, from the reactions, and sit with this a little bit before I actually was able to objectively look at what this is as an album and assess. And I feel like only over the last two days have I been able to do that. I also took a break. I took like a four or five day break from this where I didn't listen and I was listening to other stuff. And I finally went back yesterday and was like, oh, fuck this is actually amazing. And I don't know if I stand by the idler wheel is better take anymore. I really don't. I think it's up in the air. I think both are their own albums. Um, but this one's very, very good. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think we can kind of dive into the actual music here, but I needed that dust to settle to, well, to have a full picture. And it's interesting that we both said that we, we sort of needed a break. I think and like we can dive into why that is. I think a couple reasons are, um, you know, from a subject matter perspective, some of this stuff is pretty heavy. You know, there's the, mm-hmm. she sings about rape on this. She sings about a lot of complicated and complex, confusing relationships with other women, with men. There's a lot of anger and resentment. There's also a lot of levity and a lot of sort of like wistfulness on this album. Mm. It also is instrumentally really weird and it is very different it actually when you get into the rhythm of of this album it is actually pretty accessible and you can kind of get into it somewhat easily once you know what it's doing 
but and everyone's describing it this way. I'm not the first person to say it, but this is a, like a percussion album first. It is so dense with yeah. little bells and drums and, and, and things that are, it's, it's driven off of beats and it is sort of like genre defining in a way, which yeah. is interesting to say, because she's doing a lot of different things with the instrumentation and the performances. What you, what's your take on that? I completely agree. I think that's spot on. And, you know, I, I think this is, you could, how would you describe this album? Indie rock? Like what singer songwriter? Like how would you even how would you describe this? No, you you could say it's jazz pop. You could say it's like there's so many yeah. different things you can labels you can apply to it, but it really is like uniquely her, because part of what she brings to the table is um, this ability and, and sort of open mindedness to arrangement that is 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 like I don't think she the sense I get is that she's not limiting herself to like, well, my band has these instruments. So that's the kind of music we play. It seems like, like anything's on the table for her pretty much. What's interesting to me, and this has happened with idler wheel. When I listened and with this one, she is using instruments and she's using, um, like the, the tools that you would hear in pretty standard songs but she's rearranging them and using them in ways that I have never heard before. So when you bring up like, you know, damn, pimp a butterfly, twisted fantasy, some of these like other genre defining albums, I think it's a little bit easier to say why they're groundbreaking or why they're so compelling because like they're, they're doing, they're, they're introducing sounds that like we've never heard before. Whereas Fiona Apple is using instruments and sounds and things that like we're pretty familiar with pianos, guitars, drums, but is rearranging them in this mosaic kind of way that no one else has done before. And it, you end up listening the first couple of times being like, I, like I, I, I hear what's happening here and they're all things I recognize but like it sounds so different and new and i think that is why it's so impressive she is able to sort of reinvent common forms of music that like have become almost pastiche to us at this point and made them sound completely fresh and new and the way that she's able to slip in and out of like um like the timing of certain like just verses and how she's singing and then almost do this word salad in like jumble of things all at once and then slip back into the other time signature is like it can be like whiplash or jarring at first but yeah. it all feels so fluid and right at the same time and i don't think anyone else besides her can make this music i think that is absolutely spot on and i think that's why it was it was given a 10 and why it's being received like it is because i think people recognize that it's like this singular work and there's really no one who could do it because it is so fiona apple and the thing is is like the first couple listens of this of this album i kind of was like oh this is a piano album it's really heavily piano and that is mostly because the first two tracks i want you to love me and shamika I have two of the craziest piano performances I've ever heard, particularly Shamika. Mm. The riff on that song on the piano, that really fast jazzy thing that sounds crazy nuts. And like, but it works and is like also accessible. Like she makes it accessible. Yep. And the truth is, is that 
while piano plays a prominent role, past those two songs, it's not as prominent. And she's doing other things. She's experimenting with, yep. with keyboards and like some songs where it's like pretty much her and drums or her and claps and yep. stuff. Um, yep. And she does stuff like that is just, it's, it seems simple and it seems like someone should have done it, but people just haven't. Like it is an example in I Want You to Love Me, the length of time that she holds that note, I want you. And she sings you for like, 12 beats it's it she just holds it it's like you don't hear people do that it doesn't it feels right it feels like almost instantly familiar but that's not a thing people sing like that i i know and you know i i want to ask you kind of about the structure of this album too and um when do you think this album really takes off okay or does it immediately take off I think my thinking on that has shifted, actually. Um, Me too. And that's why I'm interested in what you have to say. Because originally, I was like, I actually, I think it takes until Fetch the Bolt Cutters are under the table. Where those first two songs almost remind me of like a Joanna Newsom album. Where I'm like, I'm just getting my feet. I'm getting my sea legs here. And then you kind of get into a rhythm with it. But now that I've had some time with it and repeat listens... I think it dives right in with, I want you to love me. That, that's, yeah. that feels like a mission statement right there. Like I, I, the line, like, and while I'm in this body, I want somebody to want, and I want what I want. And I want like, it, it's just like, Oh, okay. All right. Like, I totally, totally agree with you. Cause the first time, and I think what it is is that you get to fetch the bolt cutters and it's actually your first breath in on the album. Because the the first two songs really take off. And so for the first listen, it makes sense almost that you think, okay, we've settled in by Fetch the Bolt Cutters. But the first two tracks, especially the first time you hear it, you you just don't, you get a break from all the ideas she's introducing. Because you, I want you, I I want you to love me ends. And then the crazy staccato sort of piano from Shamika starts. And Shamika is an incredible achievement of a song. Lyrically. Okay. Yeah. It's such a second track, though, in, yes. in a weird way, even though it's like nothing I've ever heard. It's just like, yep, that's a second track. <laughs> yep. that, that totally makes sense. It also is like the, the way she seamlessly pulls together all these kind of disparate musical ideas with thematic lyrics throughout the I'm pissed off, funny and warm. I'm a good man in a storm. Yep. The way she sings those kind of lyrics over different rhythms and she gets back into the Shamika says I had potential part. That song's crazy. And like, it took me probably four listens to be like, okay, this is one of the gems on the album. Um, But so I agree with you. It's interesting that that's your take because I definitely felt like, okay, we really are settling in here by track three and four. First two times I listened. Now I, I think you're right. It it dives right in. Uh, Yes, it does. And um, yeah, on that first listen, I think fetch the bolt cutters was an immediate one because it does sort of allow you to take a breath and, um, same with under the table too. I think that's maybe a little bit more straightforward, but yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Do you, what, what are some of your favorites on this album, Jake? Dude, honestly, that's, it's really hard to say. Cause it's just like, it's loaded with them. I have like yeah. already put like six or seven of this song, these, the songs on this album onto my like best of the year playlist. Me too. Some of Me the too. ones I find myself looking forward to most are the first two tracks and fetch the bolt cut the first three. Uh-huh. Um, uh, heavy balloon, ladies, yes. cosmonauts. Yes. 
I would say are yep. the ones that I like most heavily look forward to when I'm doing a listen of the album. But they're all, I mean, it's all excellent. Um, I think my favorite is Heavy Balloon. I, I think now that I've had some time with I think I'm ready to say like, yep, that's my favorite. I think the chorus of I Spread Like Strawberries with the echo of I spread like strawberries. Yeah. I climb like peas and beans and like the clapping and the drum. Yeah. Like it's powerful. It's, it's sick. Catchy, but it's like, I, so I think, I think that one's my favorite followed by like maybe cosmonauts, but definitely the first couple tracks. It's really hard to pick a favorite. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are, those are some of mine as well. Um, I think a song like for her, fascinating yeah she's basically Heavy. like rapping yep. on this and it's just like i'm spitting like I, I i joked to kara i was like beyonce wishes she could have written this song yeah. um and then of course you have it, it's she has that uh that line about um getting raped on on that song which is like oh you raped me in the same bed your daughter was born in yeah like wow that's some heavy stuff the funny thing is is i think that like if you take so that song's great and it's really heavy and i think that the sentiment of that song first couple listens in it almost gets taken away as the headline of the album where it's like mm. Fiona's pissed about shit men do and like that's fair that's a theme of the album but, but I've thought about it a lot of the the times is like lyrically I Fiona seems like she's kind of like almost like wrapping her arms around other women and like and it, there's so many interesting lyrics like ladies really sticks with me and I, I there's a lyric I want to go to on ladies where that feels like such a warm-hearted like embrace of other women and this notion that like no two relationships are the same. And just because um, we've dated the same man or something doesn't mean we can't love each other, which is a fascinating idea. And the lyric that this is, so this is my favorite lyric on the album. It kills me every single time it comes up. Um, she says, uh, take it easy when he leaves me, please be my guest to whatever I might've left in his kitchen cupboards, in the back of his bathroom cabinets. And oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, there's a dress in the closet. Don't get rid of it. You look good in it. I didn't fit in it. It was never mine. It belonged to the ex-wife of another ex of mine. This is the part right here that kills me. She left it behind with a note, one line. It said, I don't know if I'm coming across, but I'm really trying. She was very kind. I, I Dude, I almost like choke up when I hear that shit because that's so yeah. compassionate and empathetic yep. for yep. just other people. And, and the thing is, is like, it all fits into the pissed off, funny and warm. Like she's this person who like, yep. she's mad at the world because the world is a hard place, but she loves people on an individual basis. I, I think that's one of the best stretches on the album and the way she strings all of those words together. Incredible. Incredibly compelling. Um, and she has, she has another uh, song too, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now, but she's basically addressing like, the current girlfriend of an ex where she's kind of like newspaper I, like i, I kind of wonder what he's telling you to make sure that we won't be friends yeah and, that's and newspaper it definitely yeah new, yeah newspaper and it seems like that's a, a through line of this album which i find really really interesting it's um, very mature yeah, perspective and difficult perspective to to op to like to kind of embrace and it's really powerful and and 
to have empathy for someone who society has pitted as your enemy and to, to see the world from another level and say, actually, no, we're not enemies. We're just two people trying to get through this. And what's really smart is that she is singing this song and writing this song, operating with the understanding that we all kind of have that assumption going already. Yep. And that, of course, we would all think that you are enemies, but I'm, I don't have to explain that to you in this song, but I can explain to you that, like, I don't want that to be the case. And I wonder why that is the case. Maybe it's him, maybe, you know, like, that's really smart. And that takes a lot of, like, trust of the listener, too, I think, to be like, you know what the fuck I'm talking about, you yeah. know? I think there's a lot of that on here. But, but um, there is so much... But- in that line of, 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 of lyrics of her finding this note from another ex that he had saying, I don't know if I'm coming across, but I'm really trying. It's so, that's so heavy with just sadness and with just like, it didn't work out. They're not together. Right. You are with him now. And right. that's such a conflicting feeling because this is this person who maybe you could have been friends. Clearly you have similar right. interests and right. And it just didn't work out. Like, it, it, and it's like, it's the saddest part of relationships that's being explored in like a really simple way. To me, that line works as well as like that, the one sentence Hemingway story, like the, the children's shoes never worn thing. Never worn. I, th- I think about that way too often. That me line, too. by the way. Very sad. Um, I also really like Under the Table. I think. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think kick me under the table all you want. I won't shut up. It's a great chorus. I think the idea that she has been dragged to this dinner by her boyfriend, who I think the implication is like, I want you to fit into this world that I am a part of that mm-hmm. maybe you're not comfortable with. And you even told me you're not comfortable being here. You don't want to go here, but I'm bringing you anyways. And I love that. She's sort of like getting drunk on the wine that's there. And she's just sort of like, fuck it. I'm going to say whatever I want at this dinner. And the visual of this guy being like, shut the fuck up. And she's like, nope, <laughs> I won't shut up. He's so fantastic. Like, I love that. There's just so many highlights on here. I absolutely see why it's a 10. Um, I think this is objectively the best album I have heard this year. I don't know if it's my favorite. It might get there. But it is the best, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, that, it still feels tough to say on, on that front. And I don't know that I can make a call. I think I'm leaning towards it just is my favorite of the year so far, though. And I, again, that could change. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the thing I was thinking is that the, the best listens I've had to this, to this album have been over the past week. Not the day it came out, not even in the days after it came out, but, but with the chance to kind of put some of that hoopla behind me in a way and just listen to it for what it is. Um, I look forward to listening to it every day now. And I, I've been really loving it. And there's a lot to get sucked into and, and to be won over by. I think key among those things that I've, I've really noticed on this album more than ever before. And like I listened to Idler Wheel a handful of times. I didn't have the relationship with it that you did or that a lot of people did because by all accounts, it's an incredible album. I've been so won over by Fiona Apple's voice. It's so versatile and she uses it in so many different ways. Some of the examples I wrote down here are how she sounds almost like Yoko Ono at the end of uh, yeah. I Want You to Want Me with the shrieks and like the dolphin sounds. Yep. 
she can do this like yeah. incredible the the line you brought up the good morning you raped me in the bed where that your daughter was born in or the i i grow, I, I spread like strawberries I, yeah you know she that's like this guttural blues yeah. kind of like yep. scream like like yell almost but she can also sing with such tenderness and like and she really can do it all and like you were saying she even like kind of raps on some of these songs yeah she's and, like in the in the beat yeah and she pulls all of it off like perfectly that I, I, i've been so won over by that yeah and i mean how many times have we come across an all-time great album where the first listen is either very challenging and we don't like it or it's like yeah that was good but i don't know and then over time it's just it it's just returns after returns and it just compounds. And I think that's what we're, we have here. This week has affirmed that for me that like, yeah, this, this is a classic. Um, and those so are the yeah, listens worth looking forward right. to. Those, those yeah. are the listens that albums like this are for. And that's why yeah. I think back to your discussion about the first day reactions, that's why that all feels so false to me and why it doesn't, I don't care to do that yeah. because yeah. It, I know in some ways, like these are different experiences right now. I'm excited about the fact that this incredible, like once in a decade review came out and I'm excited that this album is cool and people are reacting to it in all different ways. My relationship to the album is, will take place in a whole different way and at a, at a different time. Yeah. It's not today. Yeah. It's next week and the weeks that follow. That's a great way of putting it. And I think that's a great capper to that whole conversation. Um, it's a classic. Uh, it's great. Um, I'm glad you're enjoying it too. I quickly, Jake, wanted to hit on some new tracks that came out, um, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on these. We, I thought we it was interesting. literally can't. You, you will have to <laughs> pull all of the weight on these songs. Fair. No, that's fair. Um, I think the most interesting thing about these is the fact that a lot of album releases that were supposed to be happening in late April into May and even into June, which is normally one of the most popular album release times of the year. A lot of those have been pushed back because of the current situation, but we're getting a glut of new singles and new tracks as a result of that. And I wanted to just fly through a few of these. First one, The Killers put out a new track. And usually I wouldn't really give a fuck because The Killers haven't been that relevant or that great in years. This new track, though, Fire and Bone, I was seeing a little bit of uh, buzz about this on social media. People were like, ooh, killers are back. I gave it a listen. I was, like, legitimately impressed by this. Nice. Catchy chorus, but even, like, the build and some of the verses had gave me, like, a Talking Heads vibe. This was cool. I, I have to say, like, if the rest of the album is doing stuff like this, the killers are back. Um, and it's also fascinating, almost 20 years into their career, the Killers are like this legacy band now. And like, it's very weird to be like, yeah, I was listening to them when I was in seventh grade and now I'm a full grown adult and I'm still like waiting for new Killers tracks. Like that, that was just weird to me. So I thought that was interesting. Decent track though. Um, also, Earl Sweatshirt put out a new track called Whole World. Uh, this actually got a best new track on Pitchfork. This is a little less experimental than what Earl has been doing on his last couple releases. I would say this is a more straightforward straightforward Earl song. Um, there's a lot to like there. I, I did enjoy this song quite a bit. Um, also on the rap front, my guy Travis Scott put out a new track, Jake. 
this one's featuring Kid Cudi. It's called The Scots. I'm wondering if we are going to get a Travis Scott, Kid Cudi sort of um, kidsy ghosts style collaboration between the two of them called The Scots because under the artist name for this song, it says The Scots. And oh. this this song is called The Scots, but it seems to be almost like uh, an intro track to a larger project. That would make sense. I'm wondering if we'll get something like that. Because Cuddy's full name is Scott Miss Cuddy, I think. His first name is Scott. And there's Travis Scott. That makes a lot of sense. So there okay. we go. That, and so, yeah, it was like a two and a half minute track. It was quick. It felt more of like an intro. It was good, but it wasn't like fully fleshed out it, it felt more like hey we're teasing maybe this new project so keep an eye out for that um also playboy cardi i don't know if you've listened to him too much he he i think is one of the more interesting uh rappers out there right now this song um i i'm not quite sure how you pronounce it because it's an at sign followed by meh i wonder if it's it's pronounced at meh like oh at me i i don't i don't even know could be. It's bouncy. It's fun. The beat here is infectious. I highly recommend checking this one out. This is one of the better rap songs of the year. Um, check that one out. And then the last one, Jake, Charlie XCX has been holed up in quarantine. She's like, I'm working on a new album. I have all this free time. This new track, Claws, um, is peak Charlie XCX. It's like future pop. It was produced by uh, one of the people from that uh, duo, 100 Gex. I don't know if you've listened to them. A little um, bit. Yeah. So, so it's very much in that vein. Uh, they're collaborating together. So check did, that one out, too. I thought it was very good. Did you see her tweet today? At least I think it was her where she was like, my album is supposed to come out uh, May 15th. Like, I'm feeling the pressure. Fuck. Like, she's like not done with it or whatever. Now, Sean, usually the tradition holds that recommendations of the week would go last, but to give you a break between segments that you were carrying by yourself, because you have a deep dive today. Um, I do. Want me to do my recommendation quick so you have... Uh, yeah, that's breath. a great call. Okay, so my recommendation of the week is, it's less a rec recommendation really than kind of an observation. It's something I've been enjoying, and if uh, people listen to this podcast like similar things, which I assume you'd kind of have to, or this would be torture to listen to, um, you might enjoy it as well. There has been, to use your word, Sean, a glut of Beatles-related podcasts lately. Um, so a couple of them. One, Music Exists, the Ringer podcast on Spotify with Chuck Klosterman and um, Chris Ryan, which is very in our wheelhouse. Like, it is literally Jake oh, and yeah. Sean catnip shit. Um, they did yeah. They did an episode that I'm like halfway through um, about Beatles versus Stones and what that that sort of um, polar that question says about who you are as a person. If you answer Stones, if you answer Beatles, and all kinds of other discussion comes out of it. I thought it was pretty interesting. Another one that came out. So Stephen Hyden, I don't know if you knew about this. I didn't until recently. Is doing a new podcast with. Um, a music critic who I wasn't familiar with before, but who seems pretty cool. Jordan Runta, I think is his name. The podcast is called Rivals. I've listened to a few. They did one on like Mike Love versus Brian Wilson. They did one on Lindsey Buckingham versus Stevie Nicks um, and Robbie Robertson versus Levon Helm. Uh, so this episode that they just dropped is the first of two episodes that are going to be about Lennon versus McCartney. Um, 
So I'm looking forward to that. I think that that's going to be pretty interesting. And then the last one, this is pretty, I think there's a very limited chance of anyone listening to this except me, but Tim Heidecker of Tim and Eric, who does um, a podcast that I listen to occasionally called office hours. He did a little spinoff series for Patreon followers only for people who pay the subscription fee to be a Patreon of his work. And so I did it cause it's five bucks a month. I figured fuck it. And the podcast is called please, please let it be. It's just him and this other writer, not Eric of Tim and Eric, but this guy, Eric Natornicola. And they go through, they're going through episode by episode, each Beatles album and talking about, every track and like what they like about it and what they don't like. And it, it's pretty funny and it's enjoyable. So that's been kind of cool in and unexpected. He's actually gotten like really good guests, like for Sergeant Pepper, they had on Mike Nesmith, who was in the monkeys for the white album part one and for rubber soul, they got Fred Armisen for um, white album part two. They got Jonathan Rado, the producer and um, uh, Foxygen member. Um, so that, that's been pretty cool. So if you are like me and have the confluence of interest that is Tim and Eric and the Beatles, um, this, it's, it's worth checking out. Very cool. Very nice. Yeah. All sorts of hashtag content out there now, Jake. People are uh, getting creative with that. Love to see the Beatles pods out there. I am about to start the Music Exists Beatles versus Stones one. I cannot wait to get into that. Music Exists is a good recommendation of the week in general, I think, for people who listen to this podcast. 100%. Cuz it like it, it's it become one podcast. of my favorite podcasts. It just is this podcast but with a platform. It's like the same thing. It's it's, it's a it's little this podcast with with credibility yeah yeah and, and and less focused on the like they're not focusing on albums that came out last week right so there's right. none of that it's, it's the same sort of like conversation like weird slightly left of center music conversation yeah exactly yeah um okay so for this week's deep dive um and and this has been something that i think you and i have both been been doing as COVID-19 and lockdown has really taken hold is we have a lot more time to spend with albums um, or artists that we maybe didn't have time to dive into before. You did a great job explaining uh, your deep dive into the band a couple weeks ago. Um, I have taken it upon myself, Jake, to revisit a handful of albums from Mark Kozelik under the Sun Kill Moon moniker. Um, that came out before Benji in 2014. So if anyone has been listening to this podcast, they know that Benji is one of our favorite albums of all time. It hit us at the exact right time in our life. And it's incredibly, incredibly important to both of us. It was one, it was both in our top 10 albums of the decade, I believe, maybe even top five. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think that sounds Um, right. So Weirdly, as much as we love Benji, I don't think either of us have really spent the time or done the due diligence to get into Mark Kozelik's music uh, before that. We both listened to Universal Themes that came out in 2015. Um, and I believe we both listened to Come As Light and Love Are Red Valleys of Blood in 2017. These were kind of the post-Benji, Sun Kill Moon albums where he doubled and tripled down 
on the sort of stream of consciousness, I'm going to describe what I'm eating for breakfast as a 53-year-old man. To, um, to, to, to markedly mixed results. In diminishing returns. I think he was able to hit on something incredibly special and human with Benji and maybe lost the thread a little bit with uh, his subsequent releases. Now, a lot of those albums that have come out since Benji have been critically panned, um, really, really criticized. And it's, it sort of turned me off to Kozlik and Sun Kill Moon in general. And I thought Benji was this flash in the pan. It's this special album that um, will never really happen again. And it's not even worth spending too much time with the other Sun Kill Moon music. I decided kind of on a whim after seeing an Ian Cohen tweet about the album April um, to go back and listen. I was like, wait, Ian Cohen, a, a, a critic I respect and like, is going back and listening to April in 2020. This album came out in 2008, not even considered one of the best Sun Till Moon albums, and he's still giving it some play. I was like, there's, there's got to be some good stuff here. So I decided to go back and listen to it. I started with April. Um, the first track on here, Lost Verses, is one of the most beautiful indie rock songs I have ever heard. Ben Gibbard uh, is actually featured on it. I think he sings harmony on the chorus. Um, it is an incredibly moving arrangement, and the guitar playing on here is something that only Mark Kozilek can do, um, followed by this kind of like, Neil Young, Crazy Horse-esque, like, electric guitar outro. This is a 10-minute first opening track. And it's like this beautiful acoustic ballad followed by, like, this minute and a half jam. And I was hooked. The rest of this album, April, is equally beautiful in different ways. Um, it varies between sort of beautiful acoustic ballads and sort of meandering um, blues rock in a way. I, I, and I was immediately hooked. I was like, whoa, I didn't realize that this is what he sounded like before this, be before Benji, I mean. I just have one interjection, which is that, I, so I went back and listened to one of the albums that I know you're going to talk about. And I, I didn't realize that Sun Kill Moon was at a time a band, in fact. Same, same. So the, the story with Sun Kill Moon is Mark Kozlik's old band, Red House Painters, um, that, that got a good degree of fame and critical acclaim in the 90s. Um, at the turn of the century, he kind of said, I am going to shift my focus from Red House Painters and I'm going to rename this band or rename my project Sun Kill Moon. It's um, a pun on like a boxer's name because he loves boxing. And he kind of said, he's like, the only reason why I did this was to sort of like, regenerate interest or buzz like from the media and get more attention for this so he puts out in 2003 an album called ghosts of the great highway under the moniker sun kill moon um with one of the old members of red house painters and a couple new members and it's sort of this direction of beautiful finger-picked guitars and acoustic uh, ballad that we saw on Benji, but mixed with like this bluesy, hard rock, Neil Young, crazy horse edge um, that just mixes together so, so well. And 
I put on April, like I said, and I quickly went back and listened to Ghosts of the Great Highway and was immediately taken by songs like Carry Me, Ohio, Salvador Sanchez, Dooku Kim. Um, just it, it, it created this vibe and feeling that really can't be matched by anybody else. And I wrongly assumed that Mark Kozalek and Sun Kill Moon were sort of just his own project that exclusively dealt in stream of conscious sort of solo acoustic music. The albums before Benji are not that way. They're much more straightforward. They are more about like vibe than anything, much more so than I think Benji or anything that came after it. Um, they're very easy to listen to. I think sometimes even I have trouble. I can't listen to Benji whenever. I can't. Um, there's too much there. It, it, it's, there's too much emotional baggage there. It's too raw sometimes. Ghost of the Great Highway, April, even um, Among the Leaves that came out in 2012, I recently went back to that one as well. They're much more straightforward. They're less stream of conscious. They establish a vibe. A vibe. I've been very, very impressed by all of these. I've been listening nonstop it's kind of all I want to listen to lately. I think there's something about these albums that are from a simpler time, from a time where um, music could be, I don't know, just I, I think thought about and experienced a little bit differently than it is now. And he actually has some lyrics on some of these songs about like, how longer albums are not something you always see because they're hard to do. And I think that's the case. All of these albums are like an hour long, if not more. Um, a lot of these tracks are very long. They're, they're, a lot of them are seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. So you sort of need an attention span, but you don't need to be actively listening to every single track. It establishes a feeling, this kind of like melancholy feeling that I think is perfect for right now, um, where like, if you don't want to focus on anything, you can put this on and float in and out. His voice sounds great. The guitar playing's great. Really good melodies. I've just been really, really liking it. And what's very interesting about Among the Leaves, came out in 2012, you can start to see the seeds being planted of where he would go on Benji. I would say that's the closest you get to him starting to be this curmudgeon old guy. Um, he starts singing about how his back hurts and, and some of these other things. So it's just been very interesting to see that progression. Um, but I could not recommend Ghost of the Great Highway in April enough. I have been absolutely loving them. So really, really good deep dive segment. I've been enjoying these deep dives, by the way. I think this is a good segment for this time. And I, I was going to say that mm -hmm. um, Ghost of the Great Highway, that's the name, right, of that album? Yeah. Okay, so I listened once to that, and I definitely really liked it, and I think everything you said is totally on point. The thing I was far and away most stricken by was how good and actually unique a voice Mark Kozelik has, which comes across at parts of Benji, but Benji, like you said, is this kind of moment in time where he starts to pivot away from really singing and more kind of narrating. and, and Speaking almost, yeah. And I knew certain songs from early Sun Kill Moon and I knew some Red House Painters songs um, that are, are beautiful. And I always, I never really had the missing link between like what, what happened there. There's a dis, this sort of disconnect. Right. 
Um, turns out it's the albums in between. And I was, I, his voice yep. is really unlike anyone else's. And it's not beautiful in a traditional sense, but it like has this real quality to it that no one else has. It does. And that's what has been really striking me is the beauty in this music. And that, that shouldn't be a surprise because I think some things on Ghost of the Great Highway in April are reminiscent of some of the most beautiful moments on Veggie. And I'm thinking of like the finger pick guitar on, uh, I watched the film, uh, Song Remains the Same, and, and, and other tracks like that. But the singing in the structure of the song, this is a little bit more melodic and um, song forward, I guess. And, and more like, just like a normal ass song than some of the stuff you'd find on Benji. Uh, or, or certainly after that. Um, so after yeah, that I mean, I, uh, it's very tough. And I, you know, I am so in the Sun Kill Moon hole right now that I am starting to flirt with the idea of going back to like Universal Themes or Common as Light and Love, or even okay. There's this album he put out in 2018 called This Is My Dinner. It's I ten remember. songs. It's an hour and a half. It got like a 2.8 on Pitchfork or something. And I'm like, I'm sort of interested in what this is all about. Is that the one with the cat on the cover? That is the next one that came out in 2019 that um, is, get this, Jake. It is seven songs, an hour and a half. Um that one's called I Also Want to Die in New Orleans. Um, there are, the shortest song on there is four minutes and 51 seconds. The rest of them are 12 and a half minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 11 minutes, 11 minutes, and 23 minutes, respectively. Christ almighty. So in other words, start with April and Ghosts of the Great Highway. Or yes, Benji. I would highly recommend both of those. Or Benji. If you haven't listened to Benji, I don't know what the fuck you're doing listening to this podcast. But uh, <laughs> check those out. My two favorite songs, or my, my, uh, my three favorites I've been going back to a lot are Lost Verses, the opening track on April, Tonight the Sky, which is this 10-minute kind of jam on April. Um, and then two off of Ghosts of the Great Highway are Carry Me, Ohio, that one like stopped me in my tracks when I first heard it. I was like, oh, fuck, this is like the real deal. And then um, Dooku Kim, which is the 14 and a half minute extended jam on Ghost of the Great Highway about a boxer who was killed in the ring. Um, excellent, excellent stuff. Uh, could not recommend it more. I hope you all dive in. Hell yeah. Oh, you said, I hope you all dive in. It sounded like, because we're doing this over a, a, a teleconferencing app, I didn't quite hear it right. It sounded like you said, I hope you all die then. I was like, whoa. <laughs> what? Not that. Not that. What a way to wrap everyone up. Stay safe. Everyone stay healthy. Listen to these albums, though. Jake, I know you would love these. They're actually really good work albums, because like I said, you don't have to actively listen. They're almost like ambient rock in a way yeah where you can kind of just let it wash over you and they're long too so like you kind of don't you know you can float in and out ghosts of the great highway i did love when i listened once i thought it was awesome and the only thing that has stopped me from diving in has been the nascent the early stages of a wilco deep dive that i'll probably get to next episode yes yes i'm interested in that I have it on my list. I'm going to check out Summer Teeth very, very soon. It's real good. Um, that will probably be one of the first albums I listen to come May. Uh, so that one's on my list as well. Um, so this has been a great episode, Jake. Let's wrap up 
with a release radar. Mm -hmm. uh, this is for May 1st. One of the albums that did not get pushed back is the new Car Seat Headrest album called Making a Door Less Open. There's been a number of singles that have already been released for this one. Um, I'll be very interested to see how this kind of holds together as an album because some of them have been like head scratchers. Other ones I think have been very good. Um, this, this will be very interesting, I think. Uh, so we'll talk about that one on the next episode. It, something about the way this album is coming out makes me wonder whether Will Toledo did something to piss off people in the music press because the responses have been overwhelmingly negative to the tracks released. Like there have been, I've been seeing a lot of people on Twitter just being like, "These this song is bad," which you don't really see very often. There, there, there has been a lot of conversation in the household here about the song Hollywood and how how bad it is um i think a song though like can't cool me down is is very good and is an interesting kind of departure for him i really like that one yeah that one was received so we'll see that one got sort of a negative reception too even though i, I didn't hate it i thought it was pretty okay i liked it i liked it too i liked it but i haven't heard hollywood yet um it's not good i will say though it got album of the week on stereo gum for whatever that might mean okay so that, we'll that's see. a good sign, at least. Um, we, we'll, we'll talk about that one more, but that's on the release radar this week. Come, come Friday morning, Pitchfork 10. <laughs> That'd be hilarious, actually. Yeah, two weeks in a row. All cool, right, man. man. Well, good episode. Good talking to you. Uh, thanks to all the listeners for uh, sticking with us. Hope you stay safe, stay healthy. Keep hanging in there. Thanks, everybody. We are on again. Back again. We're live. Is this our third one remote? Yeah. Wow. They don't this sound bad. Worked out pretty well. They do no, work yeah. out okay. It's worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. Good for us. So yeah, life is interesting, man. So April is coming to a close. And can I just say, April it was fucking weird. Like, okay. <laughs> and I see your note here. Like, March was also very weird, but the first half of March was still normal. True. And then the back half was like, oh, this is something different, and we have to kind of get used to it. April, the entire thing has been like, you're just living in lockdown, and like, this is buzzword. This is your new normal, you know? The new abnormal, as the strokes would say. The, it, That's it, right. It's very true. And the, the tweet that I saw, this was from April, from 420, April 20th. Um, someone tweeted out, I'm actually, what, what is his? Kenechukwu. I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, Kenechukwu. I don't even yeah. know. Ni his, his name is at Nigerian Prince. <laughs> Prince with a Y. But the tweet is, March lasted three years while April going by in four minutes, which I thought was like really, really good and true. Because the truth yeah. is, April, most of us have settled into this like new routine, like you said. And like, like we talk all the time about how like, what the fuck day is it right now? I don't even know most of the time. They all feel mostly the same. There is literally no difference between April 29th and April 9th. 
like there's no, there's no difference. Even the weather hasn't really changed. No, dude. It was like 39 degrees the other day. Yeah. It's like it's May like tomorrow. What what's going on here? Yeah, it's weird. It it just it's very very weird and I think life is weirdly on a pause. Yep. But you can't actually pause life. And this is something I was talking about with my therapist where I was like, yeah, it, it feels like everything's on hold right now. But even though that's true, I think April was like, you're realizing you sort of still need to live a life, even though things are quote unquote on hold. And that's what I mean. It's like this, it's like this push and pull of like things are on hold, but you're still living and you're waiting to get back to normal, but you're actually never going to get back to normal. So yeah. we're in this in-between of like, we are all learning how to live new lives, actually. That's where like, in some ways in April, I I wouldn't say I took risk risks. Like I wear a mask when I go to stores now. I, you know what I mean? Like I, I've been pretty careful about hanging out with friends, if at all, and like pretty much haven't done that. Um, but like I've gotten takeout probably once a week and we wipe down the containers yeah. when we do. And like, I've been on walks and you know what you start hearing more of from people is just like people who are like, well, you kind of just have to do stuff. And it's like, you you're always taking risks and like I, there's flaws to that way of thinking, but in some ways it's like, we are only human and we aren't going to be perfect. A lot of us are going to make mistakes and like fuck up and like, whoops, I got it because I had a human moment and I like, hugged a friend when I saw them outside a target or something. And like they were exposed. That's such a good point. And that I think, especially over a month into this now, I have been one of the people who's, you know, I'm getting a little restless. Like maybe I'm going to get takeout now, or I'm going to go to a store when maybe a few weeks ago I wouldn't have done it. Like I, I did a, a run at target that was like, okay, I want to get a new coffee maker because now I'm at home drinking coffee every day. And like, did I need to go do that? Could I have gotten by with just my standard French press or whatever? Yeah. But like, I wanted this thing and you're so right. Like this human element takes over where humans are really, really bad about um, factoring in longer term or, or far future risk. And the further away that, risk gets in in time um the less you like account for it and i think a lot of people are starting to do that now where they're getting restless and they're like well you know people around me haven't gotten it or maybe i live in an area that hasn't been hit too hard i'll be fine but what's fucked about this is that's exactly how it gets you or in these moments where you're like ah it'll be fine it's like well no there's a reason why we're not doing those things. So yeah, I, I think and we are only human and we are going to maybe test the boundaries a little bit. And I think with a lot of places starting to quote unquote reopen, I think we'll end up seeing in two or three weeks, the consequences of that. And yeah, maybe people are willing to test those boundaries right now, but in mid-May, when we get new numbers in, is that going to be the case? Or is it going to be like, you know what? Yeah, hey, yeah, we, we can start going out more, but be still being careful. So I just think there's so much we don't know. And that's what makes this harder. That's what makes it so difficult is you're like, 
will I be fine if I go out? Maybe. We don't know. And the, the fact that you don't know for basically two weeks makes it even harder. This has been a really interesting period in time and like sort of event for um, the, the concept of personal liberty and personal freedom. I think there's a lot of people who are really inter- like, and I think sort of wrongly, and like, look, I, I think everyone is entitled to their opinion, but the people who are interpreting this as purely government overreach and purely restrictive, like from almost a libertarian way of thinking about it, like no government can yeah. tell me what to do. Don't tread on me, Jake. It's like, I sort of get it, but, it, but also I just think that that is where the fact that the United States is as individualistic as it is actually yeah. shoots us in the foot a lot of times because we've been raised, all of us, to think... It, it, well, everyone has a gun, Jake, so of course some feet are going to get shot. <laughs> That's true, but also we've been raised <laughs> to think that like we get to just do whatever we want because we're Americans, yep. and that's our right. And it is hard to tell people who hold that really, really seriously, like, get, like that's not true for the next six months, really. People take that as an affront. I do not, but some people are like giving into this theor- this thing about like our liberty is being trodden upon it's like we've it's been a month people it's not it hasn't been that fucking hard yet no that you're absolutely right and um there is a great quote about um democracy that's kind of been going around where it's like um Man, I, I'm I'm gonna butcher it. I really want to find it. It's something about how like the problem with like a, a free society or a democracy or, or basically the way America operates right now is people think their ignorance counts as freedom. Yes. When it's like no, just because you are being stupid, like our our quote unquote freedom, which is a bullshit construct to begin with, because like when you look at our democracy, it's incredibly flawed. Um, Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And just because you can't or shouldn't doesn't mean your rights are being infringed upon. Exactly. Um, So yeah, I, 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 I think you're spot on. I think a lot of people are taking it that way. I fundamentally disagree with them. And I think they're not thinking critically and they're being selfish and stupid, but that's um, my coastal elite perspective well no that's that's like pretty much my perspective too is is that like you gotta i don't know you have to sort of see the forest for the trees on this one and just be like look if if there's really bad signs that government overreach has really begun and like our liberties are really being crushed that's gonna be down the road like it's it's been a month we're not used to it so you feel bored that's what that is it's not your liberties gone away no and if pe- these people really cared about government overreach and their liberties being infringed upon, there would have been riots in the streets about the Patriot Act for 20 years now. Exactly. But guess what? People are afraid. They are more than willing to give up some freedom or some rights to stop terrorism. Or, you know, that's how they look at it. But if you, if you really think about that, the NSA... Patriot Act, you know, all all of the all of that stuff that goes on, that is so much more a jeopardy to our liberty and our freedom than 
uh, a shutdown for a couple of months to not spread a virus. And, and the fact that people don't get that, it just tells you everything you need to know about our fucking country right now. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess. One thing I was going to say is that I had this thought earlier, and, and in some ways it sounds obvious, but I actually think when you really think about it, it's not. 2020 has established itself as the weirdest year in our lives. We're four months in, it's not even close, and there's really nothing that can happen to close the gap with any other year. It has, it's, it's no. one, it's weirdest, because there's no part of any other year we've lived through and this is 1992 on that, that has something as strange and universal as a pandemic and a, a quarantine around the world. Like the, nothing comes close. Not only that, do you remember how absolutely fucked January was too? Yes. You had the massive wildfires. You had Kobe, Kobe Bryant dying in a helicopter crash. There was one other thing too that I am now forgetting. The Australian uh, fires? I, yeah. Oh, Iran. 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 Yes, exactly. We neared this nuclear been, war with Iran. Just absolutely fucked. This is such a good point that you included in the notes here. I, you're so right. And I think you could go back to probably something like 1968. Um, if not, 45. Missile crisis. 45 45 is probably worldwide upheaval 45 i think is actually the craziest year of all time in terms of the at least at least in like modern history yes yeah yeah exactly exactly modern history 45 is the high water mark i think 68 is pretty damn high yep yep oh one 68 45 and 20 even oh one man because you can be like, you know what? That was just an American thing. Yeah, and true. We're talking worldwide. Even 68, I think you can be like, eh, that was more like through the lens of uh, America. The U.S. 45 in 2020, I think, are up there as like true, true watershed. Like, this was fucked on a global scale. And the reason I bring this up is like, it has become actually trite and a total cliche to say 2020's weird, weird, man. It's crazy. And like, yeah. and, and each month is weirder than the last. Like, th- that, but it, like, it, it kind of bears repeating from the respect that like, we barely are in, into it at all. And there's no way another year is going to beat it from our life. The, how could you? Well, I really hope not. Because you know what would... But, but nothing it, could happen. Nothing could happen. That's what I'm saying is like, we can just stay the course and it remains the weirdest year we've had. Because the quarantine this, will last a few more months. Go ahead. Let's say we hit 2026 and like nuclear war breaks out. Oh, I mean in our life to date. Oh, oh, yeah, yes, yes, okay. I thought you were saying like any no, not like, even, dude. I'm not. I'm not no, holding my breath. Like not from a okay. hypothetical standpoint. I just mean like okay. It's April, and it can't lose. It is number one. Easy, easy, easy. Agreed with that. One hundred percent. We could like it could be fucking New Year's Eve tomorrow. The year could end, and it would be the weirdest year of our lives. Absolutely, yes, I agree. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Now, do, do you want, go ahead? I was going to say, um, well, I was going to transition into the Jordan talk. I don't know what you were going to say. That's where I was okay. at. Okay. The one shining moment here 
has been this Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary. I can't tell you how much I was looking forward to episodes three and four this past Sunday and how much I am looking forward to episodes five and six this Sunday. It is two hours out of the week where I can disconnect, not think about the world, and just bask in this 90s nostalgia. I am, I was telling Kara this the other day, I am addicted to these old basketball highlights right now. They're, just inject them into my veins. They're amazing. I also have the theory that as the world gets weirder and as a more sort of cloistered, sequestered life becomes the norm, I think there's going to be a major de- demand for nostalgia entertainment. And I think like this escapist nostalgia, last dance, 90s bowls, 90s culture, Michael Jordan. I can't think of anything that is more of a balm to our current life than this documentary and everything it's about. I really couldn't have put it much better. I have been enjoying it so much. And I think one thing that like speaks to the broad appeal of a documentary like this and to Michael Jordan in general is that uh, my girlfriend, Mary Kay, who's a big friend of the pod, I've I've mentioned her for years. She's into it and has been watching it with me and didn't even question watching it. And she does not like sports. Yes. Same with Kara. I was like, Jordan doc. She's like, Oh yeah, let's do it. Like, Thing. It's yeah. one of those things where it just it cuts across all things. And at one point in the in we were watching, I think episode one or two, or right before it, and and unprompted, she was like, "I love Michael Jordan," and it's like, "Yeah, I do too." And yeah. I never watched him play until he was on the Wizards. I, as a kid, I never watched a single Bulls game. I have one very vivid memory, and it had to have been from this '98 season of watching the Bulls play the Charlotte Hornets. This is back when the Hornets, A, were in Charlotte. B, okay, in the 90s and early 2000s, uniforms and and the actual design of the floor was so garish and over the top. It really was. The fucking Hornets, dude. Okay, they're they're key, like they're up to the free throw line. You know how like there's a circle and then like there's the, there's the actual free throw line that's in the middle of it. Their circle where the free throw line was, was this bright orange basketball. And then yes. the entire, the, so you have the three point line too, that is around it inside the three point line was like this purple green paint where like, dude, there was so much going on on the floor. And I have this vivid memory of watching in my parents' old house. And I, I was six. And I even knew then, I was like, Michael Jordan is like something special. And I remember watching like just the first quarter and just watching him and like just knowing that this guy was dominant and that this guy was special. That is my only memory of Michael Jordan and the Bulls watching them in the moment, six years old. My only one, literally my only one is – um, when I, I think it was around the same age. Cause I probably wouldn't remember it if I was five or four, maybe I was five. It was probably that 98 bowl season. And my dad went with his friend, John Dolan, big, big shout to John Dolan, who's definitely big friend, not of, the listening. Big friend of the pod. They went to see a Celtics game because they're playing the bulls. And I remember 
just like my mom mentioning it and and she put on the news to watch like the highlights of the game which was sports was not a part of my household until I kind of made it that when I was nine and I just kind of right. brought the initiative upon I was like I'm gonna like start watching the Celtics um but it was we didn't like really do that before and so I remember being like huh that's interesting like dad's at this game like that it must be important and I kind of knew about Michael Jordan because and this brings me to my point I think other people have made this point I'm not the first to say it but there's something universally understandable and likable about Michael Jordan's image, even if you don't know like what he was about. Because as a kid, I knew I liked Michael Jordan and I knew he was good. I didn't, I didn't realize the context or the historically unprecedented things he accomplished as a basketball player. It, it just like something about the way he looks – alone in the in the classic bulls jersey yeah it's so easily lovable in a way that is like it kind of defies explanation it's kind of like the beatles where it's just like you just sort of it's like it's this weird thing that nothing is really like and you just sort of love it if you're going to be into it that is so spot on there there is something transcendent about him in that way and i think for that reason he's inarguably the greatest player of all time. Um, he, you could argue he's the greatest athlete of all time. Like in he terms is. Of, I think he is. I think he is. Because he's more he popular is. than basketball ever was. Correct. Correct. Yes, that, that, is, that is fascinating. And you know what I like about this documentary too is um, it is using – this last season as the storytelling mechanism in a really clever way. It's not beating you over the head with Michael Jordan's the greatest. It's almost presenting it as it's understood. He's the greatest. And here's the behind the scenes story of that. And I think it is because they could have easily just done like a, kind of a by the numbers documentary where they're like, he was great because of X, Y, and Z and all the MVPs, all the titles, they're operating under the assumption. You already know that, but here is everything that was going on behind the scenes that actually makes his greatness even more interesting Yep. because the greatness on its own isn't as interesting. It's everything that comes along with it. And that's what this documentary I think is doing masterfully. So of the four episodes, the four episodes were episode one kind of just set the tone and sort of told Jordan's life story in a way. Episode two was about Scottie Pippen in, by and large. And, and, and I say this when all of them are interspersed with the 1998 storyline, but basically yep. episode one is Jordan. Episode two is Pippen. Episode three is Rodman. Episode four is Phil Jackson. Which yep. episode have you liked the most so far? Um, it's a great question. I think it's a toss-up between episode two about Scottie Pippen and the Jordan um, 63-point game against the Celtics and kind of his early, early Bulls days. And honestly, as interesting as I think Dennis Rodman is, and I want to talk about that more yes. in a second related to our boy Bill Simmons. Really, Rosillo Jackson – yeah, that, that's also true. Um, he will not b- get out of this unscathed. I think the Phil Jackson one. I think Phil Jackson is like a coaching genius, actually. Yeah. And 
um, the way he was able to manage those personalities and then have this second act with the Lakers that he's arguably even more famous for is fascinating. I think he is a really interesting, cool guy. Um, and like, I, I, I actually didn't know that he experimented with LSD, but it's so obvious now in hindsight to be yeah. like, oh yeah, like of course this guy did acid. Yeah, he's like very <laughs> into like Native American cultures and Zen and like, <laughs> and seems to understand. Dude, his nickname is the Zen Master. And he seems to understand teamwork on like a transcendent, extra planar <laughs> way. Okay, it's interesting. And you he has this, yeah. Because yeah, my favorites were those two as well. And I think ultimately the win goes to the episode two, the, the Pippin-centric episode. Really quick, so this is not related to what I was going to say. There's something to be said about the fact that it's Jordan, Pippin, Rodman. It's all things that end in N, and they're all two syllables. It's, yep. That's very catchy. That's sexy shit right there, and it sells. Jackson, dude. Jackson, oh, Jackson, too. Jackson Pippin, Rodman, yep. Jordan. Um, but with episode two... Pippin is someone who I really didn't know much about at all because he's you just always hear it's like Jordan and Pippin you just always sort of like hear it that way and it's this understood thing of like of course they were a dynamic duo I didn't even really understand like what Pippin's game was like that much I didn't really understand that much about him at all even having read the entry in the book of basketball something about seeing it really tells the tale Um, but about the Jackson thing just real quick inject all you can give me of 60s, 70s Jackson into my veins. I love that shit. Dude, Dude, when he's coaching down in, like, Puerto Rico and, like, it, it's, it's like, no rules. <laughs> like, it, it, he's, like, dispelling coaching wisdom to these guys and, like, winning a, ch- a Puerto Rican championship. Amazing. Um, and the way that Phil Jackson was able to understand these transcendent athletes, not just Michael Jordan, and understand, like, where he's operating at and able to tap into and speak to what something Michael Jordan would respond to and understand to, but having the human empathy to understand that Dennis Rodman is just a different kind of guy. And that like, you know, he's talented, but to get the most out of him, you need to like talk to him and handle him in a certain way. Um, I, I think is so interesting. And, and the final point on Pippen before we get into more Rodman stuff, I had an understanding of Pippen as like, of course, a, a great talent, one of the best perimeter defenders of all time. I don't think I really understood that he was one of the three or four best players in the league at the same time as Michael yeah. Jordan. And he is overshadowed and will always be overshadowed as a result of that. But and there's was, no avoiding like, it. Right up, was right up there in terms of greatness. Um, also? So, yeah, but I want to quickly talk about Rodman. Really um, quick, one last thing on couple, Pippen. Yeah. He has the deepest voice I've maybe ever heard. Like, in ter- I mean, I'm sure James Earl Jones probably gives him a run. His normal speaking voice, I'm not shitting you, I can barely imitate it if I try to talk as deep as I possibly it, it, can. It's more than just deep. It's like this gravelly sort of like when he, what I keep going back to is when he's talking about Jerry Krause and he's like, couldn't stand him. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't, couldn't stand him anymore. And he has this light Southern draw. And it's, it's, it's as deep as you can possibly make your voice go. It's so deep. 
And yep. um, yeah, and there's the nicely kind of like the endearing drawl going on. Yep. It's, yep. it's crazy, dude. His voice is addicting to listen to. Yeah, yes. And, and it seems to me with Pippen that like maybe the relationship with Jordan wasn't the best. I think the, there's a, subtext there. There's subtext. A relationship with Jordan for anyone seems like it was tough because I just I don't think Jordan's well, one of those Jordan dudes who's like not a human. Boys, Jordan yeah. had his boys. He had like Oakley, and he had. It yeah. seemed like he maybe even re- like Rodman had a little bit more of a connection with than even Pippen. And then uh, on on the later teams, guys like Scott Burrell or Ron Harper, it seems like he maybe had a little bit more of a relationship with than even Pippen. So that's fascinating. And I think we're going to get more uh, reveals about like Jordan being a dick (laughs) or like being a degenerate gambler in these next few episodes, which I can't wait to get to. Um, But I wanted to hit on Rodman for a second because one of our favorite podcasts, well, our two favorite podcasters, I would say, uh, are are very much up there. Ryan Rossillo, Bill Simmons on the Bill Simmons podcast. They've been breaking down these episodes. They both, Rosillo said it first. He was like, I, I don't, I, I don't think Rodman's as, uh, you know, the whole Rodman thing. Yeah, dude. Okay. Yeah, that, I don't think he's as interesting as, as people think. He, this is, the, this is Rosillo. So are we going to get into it now? Are we going to do the Rodman thing? Are we going to do the, because if we're going to do it, I, I, here's what I'll say about the Rodman thing. It's just that it's not as fucking interesting as people make it out to be. <laughs> He, Ryan Rosillo, Ryan Rosillo says fucking harder and with yeah. more hatred yeah. than anyone I've ever heard. I love it, though. I, I do, it. too. I do, too. So they say that he said this. Simmons is like, I, you know, I, I agree. I've always thought, you know, he, he not that interesting. The piercings, the tattoos, the hair. What are you talking about? Okay, Bill. Throw out the piercings, the hair the tattoos i don't give up like whatever this guy dated madonna dated carmen electra almost fucking killed himself after chuck daly was let go from the pistons okay um goes to san antonio is like a, a head case gets brought in by the bulls literally needs a break so badly he needs to go on like a a, a three-day bender to Las Vegas just to cope, just to be like, hey, man, I need a little break here. This guy, gender norms do not apply to him. I don't know if you happen to listen to the press box this week, Jake. They played a clip of him. They played a clip of him on Oprah, where Oprah in the 90s was like, what what do you say to people who, who, you know, are comfortable with you wearing a dress or this or that? He's like, man he's like I, I just you know like people could do whatever they want or like yeah um every guy has thought about being with a guy he, and she's like what he's like yeah of course come on he's like doesn't mean i go do it but he's like of course everyone's thought about it he's like how can you say that's disgusting if you've never done it and, and just like so ahead of his time honestly yeah like i, I the to call him not interesting or overrated and it is so off the mark. You know what I find the most interesting too is that there's all of that, which is fascinating. Every bit of that is fascinating to me. The image stuff, all of it. Um, but he's able 
to do what seems like in some ways the antithesis of that at the highest level, which is play a team sport and, yeah. and, and do the things in that team sport that are the least glamorous, that are the most work a day and just like, I'm just going to lunch pail shit, rebound in defense yep. while he's and Dennis I, Rodman. But I actually think the fact that he is Dennis Rodman allows him to play that way yeah because he's clearly operating on this different level of understanding of like humanity that honestly i think transcends even a lot of people now insert dennis rodman into the league now he's much more accepted he's looked at as like um an lgbt icon and like all of these things back then like of course not like people were afraid of him now he'd be much more accepted. But I even think now, by today's standards, he's cutting edge and ahead of his time. He like, is. Guys in the NBA now are not operating like Dennis Rodman. And maybe that's, that's for a lot of different reasons. But honestly, the fact that that dude thinks the way that he does probably allowed him to be the great rebounder and defender that he was and not give a fuck about scoring points. But like that, exactly. And that, that is also a part of why that's so interesting to me, is that, is that he – given his frame of mind which is clearly different it's the guy in the indian tribe who's walking backwards like phil jackson said because of that he's like i'm going to focus on this other stuff as it relates to this sport and it's it's interesting to me that someone like him would even gravitate to a sport at all most people with that sensibility would go an artist the story of, of how he even got into basketball is a fucking miracle He's homeless as a teenager, picks up basketball on a whim, goes to this college, not recruited, walks onto the team, like grew six inches or something over a summer when he was homeless. Like the, the, the story of him even getting to the league is a fucking miracle, let alone being one of the all-time defensive players. And here's the other thing that's interesting. He is actually the perfect type of player to pair with Jordan and Pippen because he didn't care about having the ball. He didn't care about scoring. He was able to do that dirty work. That team is not what they are without Dennis Rodman. And for all those reasons, he is fascinating. Yeah. And, and that just, it's, it's, it was kind of, I mean, they got slammed on Twitter for that shit. And like they oh, deserved totally. it because the truth is, is that was a half baked take. It's a half baked yeah. take. It's like, okay, it's a hot take, dude. That's a definition of a bad hot take and also like Rosillo, just because he doesn't find rodman interesting personally and he even said it like he's like i didn't expect you to agree with me that right. to me that's trying to be contrarian like if you can't find something interesting about dennis rodman's story it says a lot about you i think more than anything because and, and I, I, again i, I like Rosillo. i like bill simmons i listen to their podcast every week you know but um weird weird take i thought very weird. And final final thought on this before we get into the episode. And this is inside baseball with Simmons. Does it feel like he is not as high on this doc because he wasn't involved with it? Yes. He's an ESPN doc. He used to be like the guy when it came to documentaries there. It seems like he's downplaying how good this is. Yes. And he even did that going in. He was like, you know, yeah, it's a lot of what we knew. And I think he was actually really surprised at the positive reaction after the first two episodes. 
that people had. He's like, oh, I, you know. He's doing a lot he, of that he's shit. He's got a little bit of sour grapes. He's doing a lot of that shit where he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, like this is all stuff I knew before and I, I can't believe people are reacting to it. It's like, oh, well, you're Bill Simmons. Like, of course, you know it. You know more about the NBA than anyone because you're a fucking robot and you know that stuff. Right. Like, it's a fascinating story, dude. Like, sorry, it's not a 30 for 30. I agree. I or, I've been kind like of annoyed. HBO doc, yeah. Yeah, well, I, so I, that, I feel like they could have. Me too. It's like, and he, dude, he thinks he is the fucking iron chef of, of documentaries. And it's like, I know you get it, but it's like, yeah, I could have dealt with like another you know, five more minutes on the Phil Jackson stuff. It's like, all right, man, like it, nothing's perfect. Like it's really yeah. good. It's really good. Yeah. I, I was surprised that he gave credit. He's like, you know, I never saw that trick where, uh, you know, they, they showed video footage of someone saying something and getting the reaction of the person doing the interview which I actually think is Loved really, yeah. those are some of the best segments. And honestly, when they show Jordan, Isaiah Thomas's reaction of like what he thinks now about not shaking hands, the, you could see how angry it still made him and the hatred that he still has. It was palpable. That was maybe the best moment of that episode. Where he's yeah. like, I don't care what you what he says. It made me nervous. Yeah. I was like, dude, you're like unhinged. Dude, that's the thing about Jordan. And that's another fascinating thing is that he's so – the veneer and the appearance of Jordan is so antithetical to what really makes him tick. Because he is an unhinged competition addict. He literally is. And like yes. – it cannot lose or it makes him nuts and he has to finally win. Yep. Um, and yeah, any slight, I mean, in, in fairness, like the, the Pistons walking off was pretty lame that, you know, yeah. you shake hands, but yeah. you think bygones would be bygones after 30, literally. 30. I love that. It's not, that's what makes Jordan Jordan. The fact that it's not in 2020 when he has won everything yeah. is on the top of the world still. And he still holds that grudge. I fucking love it. Me too. It, it's it's excellent, dude. And like he he'll never change, probably, which is great. He's no, I yeah. Know, I know. It's the best. I've been loving this shit. I can't wait for more. I'm gonna be sad when it's done, and I will Me rewatch and, it on Netflix probably. Oh, I was just gonna say I will be going back to this and in and watching. Um, I love it. It's very very good. Uh, you want to dive in? Let's do it. All right. Okay, uh, you have the doc. Uh, yeah, I have it open. Okay, all right, cool. All right, ready? Yep. Three, two, one. 